This is an I Am Listening original podcast. Liberalism at its heart is about understanding people and it's about enabling them not only to have the most economically successful lives that they can have, but also to contribute to society in a wider sense. And that, for me, seems to be the most sensible way that we can run our country. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast, your go-to source for insightful discussions on local and national political matters. Join us as we take a deep dive into local government across the county. Find out what the key decision makers have to say, what your money is being spent on, and how the party's policies could affect how we live. Plus, don't miss our regular feature, Westminster Watch, where we dissect the latest developments and decisions shaping the political landscape in the heart of the UK's capital. Engage with us as we delve into the issues that matter to you and explore the dynamic world of politics from a Kent perspective. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast. In a week, it was revealed cash-strapped Kent County Council could be about to lay off hundreds of workers. Medway Council announced it was buying 150 homes, plans to stop a new winery being built gathered apace, and a top Tory was in the county to rally dispirited party members. I'm Simon Finley, the local democracy reporter covering Kent County Council, and I'm joined by my colleague, senior news editor Nikki White, who's standing in for Medway Council reporter Robert Boddy, who's away this week. Hello. And Daniel Esten, who covers the Borough and District Councils throughout the country. Hello. We'll also be speaking to KM political editor Paul Francis about the week in Westminster and our special guest, former army officer and author Mike Martin, who will be contesting Tunbridge Wells for the Lib Dems at the general election. First up, we're going to talk about what's happening at Medway Council's Gun Wharf HQ. Nikki, what's been happening? So Medway Council had its full council meeting last week where the authority voted to make a £42 million investment into temporary accommodation for homeless people and people who have uncertain housing. Um, so they want to buy 150 houses and run them themselves as their temporary accommodation offering. Um, this is an extension of a pilot scheme that was tested back in January last year when they bought 20 houses. So the council is now going to borrow the money for a further 150. So why have they decided to do this? Currently, the council uses private landlords for most of its temporary accommodation offering. But with rising numbers of homelessness and a volatile rental market, the cost to the authority to house these people was growing and simply just becoming unsustainable. This, they hope, will bring the cost down, provide the council with an asset they control rather than being on the private landlord's terms, as well as bring the additional benefit of being able to ensure the high quality of the accommodation they provide. OK, well, will this accommodation be available then? They've said that they want to get all 150 bought as soon as possible, but what they don't want to do is inadvertently inflate the local housing market, which might mean their money doesn't go as far and also will probably annoy residents who might be prevented from buying a house because of it. So it's a staggered process of bringing this temporary accommodation into use. Okay, what else is going on in Medway? Also at the full council meeting, councillors voted to write to Chancellor Jeremy Hunt um, to ask him to renew the household support fund, which is due to end in about eight weeks' time on March the 31st. It was supported by all the councillors, and the three group leaders for Labour, Conservatives and the Independents have all signed the letter to show unanimous support for the continuation of that fund. What is the Household Support Fund and how has Medway benefited from it? The HSF is a set of grants from central government to help families struggling with cost of living to pay for things like food, school uniforms and utility bills. It was first brought in back in late 2021. And although it was only supposed to be a temporary measure, it's been renewed several times. With the past couple of years, Medway Council um, getting £4.5 million a year 
and that's gone towards vouchers residents can use and also free school meals for children during the school holidays. Well, Midway Council has written to the Chancellor before. I mean, why is it likely to work this time? Uh, You're right. The authority wrote to Jeremy Hunt back before the autumn statement saying they need a better funding arrangement. That was also supported by the whole council, like this was. But as you will both know, their request wasn't answered. In this case, the fund has been renewed before and a lot of councils across the country are also asking for it to be renewed. So this time might be different, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay, thanks, Nicky. Moving on to Kent's borough and district councils. Daniel, what's been happening in your world? So I've spent some time following a troubled attempt to restructure folks in the Hive District Council to the tune of about 100 grand. They're um, trying to transition from a cabinet and leader system to what they call a committee-based one. Okay, that sounds fairly procedural. What does that actually mean? Um, so it's quite bureaucratic, but the, it does have real implications for accountability and decision-making at the council. Most Kent councils, and I think most in the country, um, have a cabinet and leader system which works sort of like Westminster. The leader of the ruling party or coalition on the council appoints cabinet members and they're individuals who make policy decisions in a specific area, be it housing, finance or the like. And they're held to account by other councillors and through its committees. Some councils have a committee structure instead. Um, committee systems can have lots of, you know, can, can look a lot of different ways. But in general, it means that the cabinet is reduced to a tiny number of people. For example, Maidstone Council has a cabinet of only three. Um, or the cabinet's straight up abolished, like in Swaleborough Council, which just doesn't have one. In a committee system, policy decisions are instead taken by committees for specific matters, which are you know, politically balanced to reflect the composition of the council. People who support this, you know, folks in Hive, that being the Greens, Labour and Liberal Democrats who form majority on the council, say that a committee system is more democratic that it means policy decisions better reflect the views of residents and that sort of thing. Critics, in this case what remains of folks and Hive's small Tory group, argue that committee systems actually create more bureaucracy and dilute accountability and responsibility by allowing councillors to hide behind committee decisions and that they in fact give more power to unelected officers of the council who can shape meeting agendas and policy recommendations. So um, well, why have they had to push back the change? Back in May last year, the Conservatives were pretty roundly turfed out of Folks and Hive District Council. There's now only six of them on the 30-seat authority. It's run by a minority coalition of the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, tacitly supported by Labour. And all three of those parties voted last summer to transition to the committee system. They made 100 grand available to do it and said that they would do it by May this year. But at the council last week, the Green leader of the council brought a motion to delay it. He said that there are too many unanswered questions about how the system would work, how councillors would be scrutinised, how decisions would be made and that sort of thing. But the Labour group, who, who originally supported the move to a committee system, were furious at this. You know, so saying that they felt stabbed in the back by the Greens. Others claimed the policy was actually you know, really popular with voters and they, they couldn't possibly vote to delay it. Nonetheless, the delay passed with the support of the Tories. Um, so the voters of folks and I will have to wait another year um, to see their council restructured. But given that you know, nowhere near a majority of those actually eligible um, vote in local politics and fewer still actually participate. Any public outcry on that uh, remains to be seen. Well, good to see that nothing has changed down in Folkestone since my days there. Uh, what else have you been looking at? So I've been looking at the last ditch effort to stop the development of a new winery just outside Canterbury, um, which has already seen off one judicial review and, and might now be facing another. Okay. Who wants to open the, uh, the winery and why do people want to stop it? Surely wine's pretty popular these days. Yeah, of course. So the the people trying to open it are um, Chapel Down. They're England's biggest producer of sparkling wine. They're actually based here in Kent. They have a big vineyard over at Tenterden. They originally got permission to build a huge winery at Canterbury Business Park back in April last year. But at the time, um, objectors threatened a judicial review of Canterbury City Council's decision to grant planning permission. Um, so the council decided to quash their own decision, took it back to the planning committee with um, you know, more details of report and a better legal basis. They then voted again to approve it. The winery is meant to be an extension to the existing business park, but that technically sits within the Kent Downs area of outstanding natural beauty where 
you know, stricter planning rules apply. The environmentalist objectors argue that the you know, circumstances aren't really exceptional enough to justify uh, building there. Um, so the countryside charity CPRE initiated the legal proceedings against Canterbury City Council, but now they're being spearheaded by Sarah Mokes, who's a parish councillor from Borton, who led the previous judicial review last year. The CPRE stands for... Uh, campaign for the protection of rural England. England. Okay. Do they have any chance of succeeding and what are the broad implications of the legal challenges to council planning decisions? Um, so the challenge is going to be heard at the High Court in early May. Whether or not they'll win obviously remains to be seen. Um, but it seems that they're fighting it largely on procedural grounds about you know how the council decided it and the information the council took into account when approving it and that sort of thing. Um, obviously I'm no lawyer but if those are the grounds for the dispute then I expect the High Court will probably throw it out. Canterbury City Council tell me they're absolutely certain of their procedure being legitimate and that the planning committee's decision from last year is you know, legally ironclad. More broadly, judicial reviews of developments and the like have become pretty common over the past few years. Projects you know, ranging from housing developments to nuclear power plants have been bogged down in judicial reviews attempting to halt them in their tracks, usually you know, more often than not brought by environmental activists. Proponents, people who bring these sort of judicial reviews, often argue that it's you know, crucial in a democracy for people to be able to use the law to challenge the decision of public authorities and governments. But critics you know, might call it lawfare. You know, some would say that the risk of expensive and time-consuming legal challenges, um, on top of the already costly procedure of getting planning permission and getting anything built, is part of why the British economy is stagnating. You know, this winery outside Canterbury is a project worth £32 million and is expected to create 400 extra jobs. So whatever the court decides to do about it, the challenge will have pretty big consequences either way. So, Simon, what's been happening in the county hall this week? Well, another big week at Kent County Council. Uh, the big news is that Kent County Council has announced that there are likely to be around 200 job losses in its children and young persons services. It's part of a wider scheme to move over to what's known as the Family Hubs model, which was championed by Dame Andrea Ledson. Essentially, a lot of community service, you know, youth clubs, community groups, and etc., will no longer get the funding it once did, and they were once commissioned by Kent County Council. And these will be replaced for essential services that will be provided by by family uh, family hubs. Uh, KCC is in pretty rough straits financially. How much is this change going to save them? Kent County Council says that the family hubs will probably save about seven million pounds, but uh, they'll also be able to uh, bid for about ten million, eleven million quid in government grants to run them. So. It's not a small amount of money, given the, the the situation that it finds itself in. So why is the government reluctant to fund councils to the level they say they need? I think that's a very good question, Nicky. Uh, the message is that councils must try and find savings and run their services more prudently. Much of this is because the government is still suffering from the after effects of a very costly pandemic. Um, but also because there is a suspicion in Whitehall that there are still many councils who waste money. They're also being encouraged to dip into the reserves. You know, if a council like KCC has to find tens of millions of pounds in savings and is forced to with to draw down on its reserves, there is a fear that the reserves won't for, last for very long. But it has to be said that KCC is a reasonably prudent council and one of the few that has deep pockets. But there are growing fears if it can't replenish what it's taking out, then those reserves will dwindle uh, to virtually nothing. So what else have you been covering? Well, this is a one that should chime with the beleaguered motorists of our, our great county. The government is considering a massive hike in fines for companies 
uh, which allow roadworks to overrun, you know, the likes, you know, utility companies, pipe laying, et cetera, et cetera. These coincide with um, some of the work started by a local councillor called Sean Holden, who's the chairman of Kent County Council's Environment and Transport Cabinet Committee. And he has been spearheading a campaign to peg back the number of temporary road closures that we're seeing in Kent and try and get the, the traffic moving again. The number of temporary road closures uh, permits um, that have been granted in, in recent years has absolutely rocketed. And it's been driven mainly by house building, building bits of infrastructure, cabling work and building maintenance, etc, etc. Um, uh, how do the new scheme of fines actually work? Well, the Department of Transport Roads Minister, uh, Guy Opham, was in the county uh, a couple of weeks ago when he launched this street works consultation, which is a series of measures including fines of up to 10000 pounds per day if um, if a company allows its contractor to run into weekends or bank holidays. At present, they're only fined for disruption on working days. And at the moment, the fines in Kent are, are so small that critics say there's almost little incentive for utility companies to be bothered about the work taking longer than planned. Uh, Mr. Offerman reckons that in the longer term, that the fines could raise about £100 million over 10 years and that money would be plied into helping fix that great scourge of Kent, the pothole. Well, that's what's been happening across Kent and Medway. Thanks, Nikki and Daniel, for your contributions. Thank you. Thank you. Is there a topic that you would like to be discussed on the Kent Politics Podcast? Perhaps you've got a question for one of our panel, or you'd like to comment on a hot topic in local or national government. Get in touch by emailing or sending a voice note to Kent Politics Podcast at thekmgroup.co.uk. And now we move on to the national picture with the KM's group political editor, Paul Francis, who's been on Westminster Watch. Hello, Paul. What's been going on then? Oh, well, as you'd expect, quite a lot, uh, Simon, has been going on. And uh, Kent has been at uh, the centre of some of this uh, activity with a visit by the chairman of the party, Richard Holden, who uh, came down to make a whistle-stop tour at a variety of Conservative associations, and they included Medway, Canterbury, Maidstone and Dover. And uh, you can see in that list that uh, there may be more interest from the Conservatives because they are some of them at least are on marginal seats. Now, I think it's, it's the job of the party chairman to uh, kind of rally the troops, as you said, uh, and give uh, give them some reasons to be optimistic about the future. Quite a difficult uh, sell for uh, the Conservative Party. But uh, he his, message, his key message was that uh, party members uh, should resist being seduced by the likes of the Reform Party and uh, that message, I think, is going to be repeated a number of times over the next six or seven months. Richard Holt is an interesting character because he was basically the guy who ran the campaign for Kelly Tolhurst in the 2014 Rochester and Strood by-election when, when uh, Mark Reckless defected and, and he then got re-elected as, as, a, as a UKIPper. So he kind of knows the patch, doesn't he? He, he does, and he, he knows what uh, perhaps pushes the right buttons for voters. Uh, as you say, he, he kind of was David Cameron's chief spin doctor, David Cameron, if you remember, made about so 28 visits to Rochester Street to try and uh, save the seat for the Conservative Kelly Tolhurst. So, yes, he's, he's kind of, uh, a pre- he appreciates the kind of particular issues that are, are affecting Kent. He's quite, um, he's quite media savvy, uh, Richard Holden. I, 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 have you spoken to him and what did he have to say for himself? Yeah, I did speak to him and uh, I reminded him that uh, one of his tactics uh, during some of the press conferences was to uh, 
if you felt you were going on too long asking questions, you come along and tap you on the so- on the shoulder in, in a message to, to help. Um, but yeah, he's. I think the, uh, the 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 presence of him in the county indicates that uh, you know the party is in some trouble, uh, even in the kind of Shah Tory councils uh, areas, which uh, used to be kind of bankers for, for votes. And I think the message came through fairly strongly from what he told me was that. Uh, this is going to be uh, an election battle on familiar ground, i.e. tax cuts being promised by the Conservative Party and uh, Labour having to defend its uh, commitments to spend £28 billion on their green economy and a green agenda. So I think it's going to be a familiar battleground. And we had a bit of a parliamentary bust-up just this week when uh, Kelly Tolhurst asked the Prime Minister to effectively condemn Medway Council's, that's Labour Medway Council's administration, for failing to honour its commitments to um, safeguard jobs at Chatham Docks. So there's uh, definitely a sort of fever in the air. Mm. So I think the mood is a bit glum within the ranks of the party. Would that be correct? I think, yeah, I think... So, I mean, they are a bit glum. They're, you, you think what uh, they've gone through. And I think the other the other thing is that Kent is on the radar of all the parties because of these issues like the small boats crossings, uh, top of the affects Dover and, and other parts of the kind of sea line and um, the dreaded, you know, Operation Stack, Operation Brock, whatever it's called these days, is kind of evidence that they have got particular issues which people want to hear how they're going to be solved. And as yet, I don't think they've, they've heard that. Okay. There's been some criticism of Labour's plans to scrap tax relief for fee-paying independent schools and the impact that it'll have on the grammars, which we've got in Kent, obviously. What's that all about then? Well, uh, grammar schools are always uh, interesting for debate about uh, the politics of education, if you like. And I think this is another attack line that the Conservatives are going to use against Labour, which has promised to uh, cut the VAT relief on uh, school fees by around about 20%, I think it was. Now, those who support grammar schools say that this is going to have some impact on the uh, the, the contest, if you like, uh, the attempts to get a grammar school place, which is done by the Dunn Plus. I think what they're saying is quite complex. complex social story is that some parents will find it difficult to meet those school fees of private fee-paying independent schools and therefore, they will head towards you know grammar schools as mm-hmm. a, as an alternative. Uh, and if that happens, they will uh, have the benefits of perhaps tutoring a, a head start on other children. Uh, and we know KCC King Housing Council has made some valiant attempts to increase the kind of uh, numbers of socially disadvantaged children in grammar schools, but with varying degrees of success. Okay. One final question: When do you think the election will take place, and what do you reckon the result will be? Uh, I think I'll pass on the second part of that question. <laughs> um, I, I think we've got to assume, take uh, Rishi at his word and assume that it is going to be autumn time. Now, I think there is an issue there about, you know, uh, if you run it up too close to Christmas, people are going to be a bit annoyed because it will interrupt with their preparations for Christmas. Uh, so I I would figure around about so October time, possibly after leaders' conferences, uh, party week conferences, uh, and they've got the fa- they've got to factor that into the equation, and maybe uh, it will be the launch pad for the. Mm. Oh, very interesting. Listen, Paul. Um, thank you once again for your insight into what's happening, and I'll see you next week. No problem at all. Okay, thanks, Paul. Mm-hmm. 
Now we welcome our special guest, Mike Martin, a former army officer, military strategist and author. He's standing in the general election the Liberal Democrats in Tunbridge Wells. Hi, Mike. Nice to speak to you. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me on. Perhaps you could tell us a little about your path into politics. You're going to be standing in Tunbridge Wells against Greg Clark, the sitting Tory. Tell us a little bit about your path into politics. Well, I I started my career in the army, uh, including two years that I spent in Afghanistan. And I was a political officer, so I spoke fluent Pushtu, and my job was to sit down and talk to the cast of characters involved in the conflict in in Helmand in Afghanistan where the British troops were. And really what I was doing every day was solving problems and listening to people and their concerns and their hopes and and the problems that they have and and trying to solve them. And really what the political officers were doing was trying to solve those problems so that we didn't have to resort to fighting. And luckily in the UK, we don't have that problem, but politics is politics. And it's so deceived for me. And, And since leaving the army, I've worked in a number of conflict zones, all on the political side of conflict, so trying to understand them and to solve them. I've worked as a senior leader in a charity uh, that worked to bring organisations and people together across divides. And I've written a number of books as well about society and conflict and, and travel and psychology, all around this theme, really. And I guess those skills of understanding people and helping them solve problems are the skills that I'd like to bring into politics. Okay, um, you are the candidate for the Liberal Democrats in Tunbridge Wells. I mean, what drew you particularly to the Liberal Democrats as a party? I think that liberalism, which is really the political philosophy that sits behind the Lib Dems, uh, is, for me, I think it's the only sensible way that you want to run a country because liberalism at its heart is about empowering individuals. So it doesn't see people as a collective, that they're all the same. It sees everyone as individuals and it tries to understand those individuals and to empower them. So whether that's through education, education is really important, or whether it's through having the right infrastructure, it's about understanding people and it's about enabling them not only to have the most economically successful lives that they can have, but also to contribute to society in a wider sense. And that for me seems to be the most sensible way we can run our country. Tunbridge Wells has always been seen as a traditional Tory stronghold. Greg Clark's Ooh. been there for a while. He's got a 14,500 majority. Yeah. The polling uh, analysis website, Electoral Calculus, um, says that the Lib Dems are likely to come in third, yet it's the target seat for the Lib Dems in Kent, as far as I could understand. What makes you think you can win? I think it's interesting that you cite Electoral Calculus, because if you have a look at their website, Simon, you'll see that about a month ago they released a blog saying that they um, weren't quite so sure of their model in seats where the third party, i.e. the Liberal Democrats, were very strong and that it underestimated the support of the Liberal Democrats. Um, So I can give you other polls, uh, actual polls rather than just um, agglomerations like electoral calculus. And uh, for instance, there was a Stonehaven poll that came out in December uh, that put the Lib Dems within 250 votes of the Conservatives and Labour miles and miles away. So um, to answer your question about why we think we could win it, there's three things really that are happening in Tunbridge Wells. One is there's a big demographic shift, and this has been going on for quite a few years. So, you know, a thousand people every year move down, mostly from London, 
And very, very few of these people are voting conservative. So that's the first thing that's happened. And whilst this shift has been going on, generating this change in what Tumbridge looks like, it looks much more like young families, like my wife and I and my daughter, and much less like the Tumbridge Wells of yesteryear, the stereotype with which, you know, the retired colonel with the red cords. So whilst that's been going on, everything that we know about the Conservative Party, where it's become much more right wing, it's become much less competent and much less worried about the truth. Well, that's been happening at exactly the same time. So Tunbridge Wells have been going in one direction and the Conservative Party has been going in the other direction. And the third thing that's happened is that the Liberal Democrats have got really, really organised over the last few years. And, and these three things are playing out in the election results in Tunbridge Wells. So obviously it was a Remain constituency, 55% Remain. Uh, in recent years, the Liberal Democrats have taken control of the local council, the biggest party. And this year in the all-ups, we hope to take a majority. And our own... You know, we just spoke about some polling, but our own canvassing data shows that actually, far from being a Tory safe seat, Tunbridge Wells is neck and neck between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems and Labour a miles away. In fact, Labour have declared the seat a non-battleground seat. So Labour HQ have actually given up on Tunbridge Wells as a seat that they're going to fight. Okay. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that you will have to depend on tactical voting, perhaps a little bit of help from the Greens? A little bit of help from the Labour Party? So I, I think tactical voting is a nice to have, really. That's how I see it. And of course, you know, we're grateful for uh, people who vote for us. But really to win a seat, you know, you spoke of this 14,500 majority. That means that there's 7,500, give or take, Conservative voters who voted Conservative in 2019 that we want to convince and make a compelling offer to them with a credible candidate and, and a good programme, we need to make an offer to them that makes them switch from Conservative to Lib Dem. And that's really the heart of how you win a seat like Tunbridge Wells. And of course, it is nice as well to have tactical voting. You talk about Labour voters and Green voters. So that's great to have. And of course, we do, we do focus on that. We have lots of conversations with Labour voters. Lots of them say, actually, yeah, we understand that Labour can't win here. The Labour Party have given up. Yeah, we're going to vote for you because... Uh, we want, uh, you know, the, the next best thing for us as a progressive, you know, party is the Liberal Democrats. But really the heart of it, the primary focus, of course, is that credible, compelling offer to former Conservative voters. OK. And focusing on local issues to Tombridge Wells, have they, what, what sort of issues are, are, are pertinent at the minute? Have they managed to sort that old cinema side out yet? <laughs> The cinema site actually is, is great that you ask. It just in the last couple of weeks, uh, men in yellow jackets have started appearing on site with uh, those little, you know, the theodolites, the laser yep. things, just to just to check out the site. The big issue uh, in Tombridge Wells itself, and of course this this bleeds out into some of the nearer villages like Lamberhurst or, or Langton Green, is Tombridge Wells town centre itself, and that really goes for for the, your listeners who know Tombridge Wells from really the cinema site all the way up through uh, where the Millennium Clock is and the entrance to the Royal Victoria Place, all the way up to Five Ways. A lot of people feel, the majority of people feel that the town centre is a bit tired. It hasn't had as much attention as it could have had. And really, we need to think about what the town centre should be like in the 21st century, uh, rather than, you know, there's been a lot of attention on trying to recreate the town centre of the 1980s. And we, and we can't do that because Amazon's happened People buy things online. So town, town centres provide different things now. So that's really my going to be my main focus if I get elected, 
is bringing together the county council, the borough council, other interested parties, lobbying central government for, for, for levelling up funding, all that kind of stuff, bringing all those different people together and setting out really a 10-year plan for the town centre and, and getting everyone behind it and, and helping, you know, one of the powerful things that an MP has is narrative power. So if you can co-create that vision with all the interested people, most importantly, of course, the people who live there, and then defend that vision when other people attack it because they don't like elements of it, that's how you get change is by offering community leadership. And that's something that I really hope to do if I get elected. Okay, one of the big issues in Kent and will probably feature very significantly during the general election campaign is the small boat crossings. I mean, by, by the, if, yeah. it's, if it's a summer election, they will be at their height. If it's an autumn election, they'll still be happening and they'll probably be slightly on the way. I mean, what can the Liberal Democrats do about that? Well, I think, I think we've got to be really, really focused on where the problem lies. And this really is a problem with the Rwanda small boats thing. And that is the small boats are a very, very small percentage of the total uh, immigrant figures into the country. The, most, the vast majority of uh, immigrants who come to this country come through legal means. And that's largely as a result of our economy. Certain sects of our economy need those people coming in. So social care is like a classic example. But dealing specifically with the small boats, I think it's a really good example of how a lot of government is actually just quite boring problem solving. And the problem that needs solving here is people need to be processed quickly. At the moment, we have a situation where you land on a small boat and it might take months or even more than a year for your claim to be processed and the decision to be made. And during that time, you're living in a hotel, which costs a huge amount of money. You're not allowed to work. You know, there are all these problems and effectively it costs a huge amount of money and creates a huge problem. And then the other thing you need to realise is that a lot of people who do arrive have their asylum claims agreed because they come from places like Iraq or from uh, Afghanistan and, you know, their brother's been killed or whatever. So if we are agreeing people, uh, agreeing that people arrive, then we need to look at safe routes for people to come. And actually, the government has done this. I mean, it's amazing that the government focuses so much on its Rwanda policy because in the background, it has quietly set up these safe routes. We've had one for Afghans, and that's brought lots of Afghans here, many of those people who worked with us. The other thing that you need to do is think very carefully about return agreements. And again, this is something the government's done, but it needs to focus on doing this rather than flashy policies like Rwanda that cost a lot of money and are limited to only taking 200 people per year. So about two years ago, the vast majority of people that were coming across the small boats were Albanians. And the Albanians were basically economic migrants, right? Because Albania is a safe country, so there was no reason for them to be coming here. And the government went across and negotiated a returns agreement with Albania. And then when people arrived, they just got returned to Albania straight away. And now the proportion of Albanians that are coming across is very, very low. So that was actually a government success. But they don't talk about that because they prefer to talk about things that generate big media attention and play to their base, like the Rwanda policy. Ultimately, people want effective government. An effective government when it comes to small boat crossings is either generating return agreements where you can generate return agreements, but most importantly, having a processing system that processes people within a month. It's crazy that we have people waiting for 18 months before they get a decision. Think of taking that money that we spent on Rwanda, which is currently about £400 million. Imagine if you spent that on a sensible processing system that could turn everyone's claims around within a month. And you either 
get into the country because you have a legal asylum claim, in which case we'll teach you English and you can go and get a job. There are restaurants and bars in Tunbridge Wells that are crying out for staff. There are farms in Kent that are crying out for people to pick fruit. There's a workforce there that's literally coming here to work. So those people should be, should be put to work. And for those people whose claims fail because they're making a false claim, then they either go back through a returns agreement or they get sent back home. But the core of that is a sensible, speedy processing system. Okay. Finally, uh, what other uh, parts of Kent uh, will the Liberal Democrats be looking to to focus on at the general election? Which other constituents can you see uh, being vulnerable? I think, I mean, as well as Tomridge Wells, Tomridge Wells is, is, is obviously the closest to getting over the line. But I think uh, Seven Oaks is definitely one to watch. A very, very strong Lib Dem candidate there, Richard Stretfield. And also Maidstone, I think as well, historically has had quite strong Lib Dem support and and then the recent local council elections, uh, there was a very, very strong showing for the Lib Dems. So those, those are the three that I would probably watch in the general election. Okay. Listen, Mike Martin, thank you very much indeed for your time and all the best. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week's Kent Politics podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to also tune into KMTV on Fridays at 5pm for its politics show. We'll be back next week with more top news and analysis All the best now. Thanks for listening to the Kent Politics Podcast. Don't forget to check out stories throughout the week on the politics page of Kent Online. And you can watch the Kent Politics Show with Rob Bailey on KMTV every Friday at 5pm or on demand at kmtv.co.uk. This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, iam-listening.co.uk. 